You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Melanie Challenger is a writer, researcher, and broadcaster on environmental history and philosophy of science. She's the deputy co-chair of the Nuffield Council on Bioethics and a vice president of the RSPCA in the UK. Her books include How to Be an Animal, What It Means to Be Human, On Extinction, How We Became Estranged from Nature, and as editor, Animal Dignity, Philosophical Reflections on Non-Human Existence. Thank you for joining us, Melanie. It's a pleasure to be here. As I read your book, I I found your arguments really interesting, and I came upon this name, John Locke, a few times, and I thought, wow, what a great philosopher. I remember reading all about him in college. And, And then I thought, you know, Back in the 20th century, the entire 20th century, we had a real dearth of philosophers and philosophy. The only one that I could bring come to note was Jean-Paul Sartre and existentialism, and that was a big deal, but not much else. And that one of the things that made me think was that this book does a good job at attempting to catch up. It's often said that our morality and our philosophy have not caught up with our technology, which is racing ahead unchecked. And this book seems to be a really sincere and honest and important attempt to catch up philosophy with science while adhering to science at the same time. That's very kind of you to say. I mean, it was pretty hard won if I'm truthful. It wasn't an easy breeze through the philosophy and the ideas. In fact, you know, I spent probably a lot of my time sat there kind of giving myself a headache trying to think through the ideas because the reality is the sorts of questions that I think are in How to Be Animal about what it means to be human, about the the human condition very broadly, about our relationship with regard to where we came from, so our origins in evolutionary process, our origins, our relatedness to the rest of the living world, and the way we've come to think about ourselves as in many different ways and many different cultures, as in some way separate from our flesh, for instance, separate from our bodies or separate from other species in some kind of way. Those sorts of ideas, when you, you, these are ideas that people have been thinking about for thousands of years, in fact, and we haven't quite come up with clarity over those sorts of questions. These aren't trivial. And and they take a lot of thinking through. So I I found it I found it hard going, and I actually relied upon the company of many other kinds of thinkers um, from from throughout history, and also to be honest, lots of gregarious conversations with other other thinkers, other people who were kind of circling around these sorts of ideas. So the book was was a conversation with with history to a certain extent and also in some ways a conversation with with other people who were trying to figure these things out because none of this is simple it's you know you can't 
bring forth a straightforward answer to what is the right way for a human to be in the world. That is not, that's, you're not going to get a simple answer for that. So what I hope I've done in the book is create space for people to think that's what, and and to engage in that wider conversation. That's what I see the book is doing. You know, one of the things I thought that was kind of interesting and another thought that this book spurred in me was that in the 20th century, especially the second half, that science has been perceived by many people as a sort of replacement for philosophy, I guess a factual replacement. And one of the things I think you do is to step back from that in this book and say, okay, Science is important and facts are important, but philosophy is how what we do with the facts. And and I think that that's a very important distinction to make. For sure. I think there's a, a further distinction that we can make, which is or point that we can make, which is that science doesn't exist in some sort of value vacuum. In fact, the sorts of questions that we scientifically examine come from a very valenced kind of position that we in fact are drenched in values all the time and especially when there's a gap that we're trying to scientifically argue for or or, or um, explore in some kind of way any sort of void in our knowledge tends to be filled in quite quickly with the stories that we like to tell ourselves and so particularly with regard so one of the things obviously that I do in the book in examining what it means for us to be animals is looking of course at our relationship with other living beings and a great deal of that it relies on the best kind of science that there is available to us and the kind of data that's rich data that's come forward in the past certainly 30 years about animal perceptions different kinds so not just animals other other species so the perceptions of organisms the intelligence of other organisms the uh, capacities and capabilities And as part of that story, you're having to tell a parallel story about how that kind of science has been conducted and why it wasn't conducted earlier, why those were not interesting questions to ask until fairly recently, why, in fact, it was just assumed that other living beings were kind of automatons, that they were machine-like, that they were objects, and therefore why we have a history of science that that has accelerated the data that we now have about the rich lives of other beings, but why that wasn't there prior. That Those two sort of sets of questions or ways of thinking about science have to happen in parallel in order to make sure that you really understand why knowledge gets created and how it gets created and what can... Um, yeah, what can bias us uh, along the way? I think that... that and it, of course, the next step that you make once you have that rich science is how does this knowledge matter to us? So that's when you make the little turn into moral philosophy, because it's at that point in time. In fact, I was having a really interesting conversation with a brilliant, lovely neuroscientist earlier today. Um, and we were talking about the situation that neuroscience faces, for instance, at the moment where huge amounts of of research that we have and data that we have on the cognitive capacities and the sentience and the pain experience, for instance, of other living beings comes from 
using animal research models. So we're in this strange situation where we're using lots and lots of animal research models in situations that can be challenging and problematic. And yet there from that work is coming all of this data that shows us the kinds of rich lives that they have and also their proximity to us, particularly if we're thinking about a rat model, for instance, what do we do with that knowledge once we've created it? Because there are very clearly ethical ramifications. And so there are kind of those three steps, I guess, that we have to make when we're interacting with science, which is a huge part of my work and very important to me, which is the first is that you have to understand, you know, you have to pay attention to the brilliance of the science and the methodologies, but then you have to ask the question about the history of that science and its context. And then you have to ask, what does this matter to us in the world and how is this going to impact us? You know, a word I heard you use a couple of times in that answer in an important sense was story and stories and narratives. And that's one thing that, that humans do really well. We create narratives. We are, in fact, a narrative species. If I ask you who you are, you will tell me a story about who you are. And so I think that uh, one of the things this book does really well is to weave together threads of story, threads of, of moral ethicism, and threads of advancing science, which are kind of the three main aspects of this book, to help us understand what the story has been so far of our relationship to animals and how that that defines who we are. And so I wonder if you talk a little bit about, you know, I guess that your understanding of the neuroscience of, of storytelling and how that impacts our ethical and moral understanding. Well, I'm no expert on the neuroscience of storytelling. I have, however, thought a lot about and do have more of an insight into the way that the uh, the way that we prime our minds so the kind of storytelling that we might do prior to interacting with another subject and how that affects us so an example of that would be for instance i'll give you an example from kind of dehumanization studies so objectification studies so in the really interesting science across psychology and neuroscience, so they kind of blend together from kind of psychology and neuroscience to look at how objectification kind of works in the brain. And a lot of it's to do with, you know, prefrontal cortex, social cognition, the way that we recognize agency in another, for instance, the way that we um, assume or perceive mind in another being. And, and then the next step, how we value that that the kind of idea that we are dealing with another agent another person with feelings or individual or entity with feelings so there's lots of really really great rich study across these areas uh, that, that's you know increasingly robust but a really nice little part of it is looking at the idea of human exceptionalism and human uniqueness so in some early research that was done on on how does that story, the story that we are unique in nature, how does that affect us? Uh, this can be kind of mapped to various other pieces of work on, on, on our social cognition. But in some studies where, for instance, let's say this is would be a kind of example of a kind of study that could be done or has been done. You have 
two essays, essay questions that are presented to students or to a kind of a, a research group. One says that humans are really unique in nature, that they're not like any other kind of animal, that they're exceptional. And the other says that we are um, just, you know, we're, we're special, sure, but we're, we're just like other animals, ultimately, that we're all related, that we're, we're all animals too. In some work done on kind of giving people um, a, a prime, so in this case, provoking feelings of existential dread or provoking feelings of mortality or fears of death beforehand, and then presenting them with those two different stories, individuals tend to favour when they've been presented with some sort of threat or something that makes them a bit existentially uncomfortable, they tend to favor the uniqueness narrative over the solidarity narrative. So we have studies like that. And then we have other studies that we can kind of link with that, that look at say how we dehumanize one another using the idea that, that you are like an animal, that a human is like an animal. Now, in efforts to try and affect that aspect of our social cognition, so to try and push us away from objectifying one another to dehumanizing one another and try and kind of get, get at that and, and improve that in certain people, there are studies where they've primed them with the story, no, you know, we're all, all humans are animals, you know, none of us are unique. So, you know, why, you, you know, dehumanizing doesn't work because we're all animals kind of thing. And then there are others, the other story that you can tell is, well, human beings are special, but animals are special too. So you kind of, instead of pulling us down to the lower level, you lift animals up. In those two stories, when you prime people with that, the one that impacts dehumanization more is not the one that tells us we're all animals. It's the one that says, well, we're all wonderful, that we're all special, that kind of elevates animals up a little bit. So I think there are some really compelling and interesting studies that... Um, that, that, that those are examples of ways in which the kinds of stories that we that we tell ourselves in advance greatly alter can, can really significantly alter the way that we either relate to other animals or the kinds of stories that we prefer about our animality or um, impact the way that we then in fact relate to one another. You know one story we've told ourselves for our as long as we've been around is that there are two parts to us. There's the mind and the body and they're separate according to mo the, most of those stories that the, the mind is this special thing. It's the soul. It's our, you know, uh, self-consciousness. It's what sets us apart from the animals. And I think that you do a really good job of, of examining that perspective and the way it has created a fault line for us that we're only now our understanding of the neuroscience of the animal kingdom and our own neuroscience is like closing that fault up but that it still remains doesn't it oh hugely so i mean you've hit you've hit on probably the story that first motivated me to get going with this analysis I was extremely curious about dualism so we would broadly call this dualism so mind-body dualism so the idea that human beings are split between two and not just human beings potentially in some worldviews like the animistic worldviews 
that all living beings are made up of two parts. So a spiritual part, it could be so a soul-based part or a physical and a physical part, or in mind-body dualism, a mind part, a mental part, and then the physical part. That was an idea, it is incredibly widespread. So it's widespread throughout recorded history and we can presume prior to that. It's widespread across different kinds of cultures. So we find um, that sort of spiritual, physical split in lots of indigenous or animistic worldviews. In um, certain kind of Eastern philosophies, you might find more of a kind of soul body split in it split in our in Christianity and Abrahamic faiths, again, you find a split between the soul part and the physical part. And then most curiously of all, once you move on to sort of enlightenment plus thinking, so once we get the, the birth of scientific method, methodologies and rationalism, you find that the soul becomes a problematic idea for many thinkers and increasingly so as science takes hold and yet what happens is the soul kind of shrinks up into the into the brain into the mind into reason into free will and you find you you kind of still have the soul it's just it's located in the brain at this point in time you still have a kind of dualism and what's extraordinary is that that dualism still drives and designs a huge amount of our life we live our lives around the idea that it is the mental bit of us that matters or if you are a faith that it is the soul that primarily matters that your work has to be done on safeguarding on nurturing this this spiritual essence and the flesh is this kind of problematic bit now i was very curious about this idea because it's it's so deeply entrenched and because it's not just a western perspective it's 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 is a i don't want to say human but it's it's a very common idea throughout humanity and throughout history and you have to square up to it you have to think about that properly because our legal systems still work with it personhood if you like is still a kind of moral dualism that's relying on certain kinds of mental capacities as giving moral standing is giving moral grounds there are lots of different ways that this has actually really direct implications in in our world so you need to make sense of it you know people living their lives around this idea in a very very profound way what if it's not quite right you have to ask be, be brave enough to ask that question so one of the things I was really trying to do and you could still say, well, maybe there is a kind of dualism, but what if the idea that one bit matters more than the other bit is wrong? You know, that you, either way you have to, you know, so the value assumptions about this, whether well, it's the soul that matters or it's the mind that matters, it's the mind that it gives moral status and not the body. It's not the feelings of the body. It's not the emotions, it's not the urges, et cetera, et cetera. It's not instinct. This is a really, really, really important idea. And so I, I, I went to town on it and, one of the things that I think Lee sort of has, has um, encouraged dualism is that it feels like that to be a human. You know, it, it really does feel, unless you mess around with your body in some way, so unless you do something experimental, like you immerse yourself in, in a sensory deprived environment, as an example, unless you kind of mess around with your biochemistry and your, your physical being a little bit, or you take a mind altering drug, for instance, unless you do a, some sort of um, physically kind of um, 
you you play with your your physical being in some way ordinarily the sensation is that there is a kind of me being carried around that that, that somehow there's a something that is my identity and being that is being carried around it kind of feels like that and yet we now know that our experience as an organism is fully integrated in the body it's a hugely embodied experience it's not just an embodied experience alone it's also for social animals it's it's also partly built by our social relationships with one another with our relationship to our environment but it's a deeply integrated deeply holistic deeply em- embodied experience and embedded experience and so certainly that dualism is an illusion as best as we can see that doesn't mean the self is an illusion it just means the idea that there's a separation between mind and body is an illusion i think we we can be clear that that is not how organisms work we actually work as these breathtakingly extraordinary integrated states we are a pattern of of action and decision making and and purposive purposeful behavior that is fully integrated at all times second by second by second um at ev- every moment what we are not is some kind of yes of course you get ways in which agency for instance or mind are you know are are centralizing some aspects you know you you will of course get sort of activity that will concentrate in one part of the body and we can see that there's the concentration of aspects of mental experience of course are in the brain you know we can see that kind of thing just like certain muscles are going to do certain kinds of work of course the body does separate out a little bit in that way but it's not a separate bit that we can pull out and this is this is the dream of lots and lots of people now. And again, we, we have to look at what's happening with technological advances. They, they're, they're all about the way that we can somehow kind of get rid of this problematic fleshy bit of us that kind of doesn't matter so much, that is also going to get old and die, which we don't like. And we have to sort of seek this salvation narrative that will take that this part of us, this immortal part of us and allow us to to live on. And we're now getting, you know, AI, we're getting various different brain machine interfaces, different kinds of technologies that actually hope to offer this for people. Um, So, you know, it's, it's, a really live idea still. And it's, it's a huge part of the, of the analysis in the book. Well, one of the things I think your book does really well is to prepare us ethically and morally to ask the right questions about what's human and what's not, and also to think about um, the implications of some of these technologies. The, the idea that you could upload your mind to a chip sounds great. I mean, gosh, I could live forever in some computer somewhere, but I, I think that the actual reality may prove that once, because so much of what we are finding out is that our brain is not just in our head and controlling our eyes. Our brain is in our gut. Our brain is in our legs. And when we move, those nerves are not just, um, they're not just telephone lines down to your, down to your toes. The, the computer does not wear tennis shoes. The computer has feet that require tennis shoes. It's a big difference. I think that if, 
the first people who might try to upload themselves to a chip would, would go insane because it exhibit what to them might feel like a locked room syndrome. And you talk about somebody who had locked room syndrome, and, and that's, I think, the kind of questions we're going to have to learn to ask ourselves. What does it mean to be locked in a locked room, and will we do that to ourselves by trying to upload ourselves into a computer? But you know what? I mean, I think people, the, the, the problem is that a lot of people feel like they're in a locked room. That is the anxiety. Now, it, they feel that they're trapped. There's a wonderful Yeats poem, you know, that really gets at this, this kind of um, idea that you, as you age, as you mature, your your brain is not aging in the same kind of way of course you accrue some wisdom and your your identity is over decades now rather than years and there's that sort of maturation process but I think a lot of people are are sensitive to the fact that the brain kind of feels quite young still and quite vibrant and excited and hasn't quite caught up with the fact that the body is 60 let's say or 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 what have you I remember my mom saying to me when that, you know, as she got into her sort of um, 70s, she would sort of catch a sight of herself just like off guard before she could really recognize what was happening. She would just see herself and be like, oh, it's that old lady. And then realize <laughs> it was her. So I think people feel locked in anyway. This is the trouble in a body that they find frightening. So one of the questions that we have to ask is why have we chosen? So, you know, I was saying that dualism, we can kind of make sense of because it sort of feels a little bit like that because we are, we are animals that have adapted to be aware of our awareness. You know, that's what, what our kind of, and more than that, we're adapted to having long-standing, lifelong, complex relations with strangers and with people who've tracked us and have the same knowledge about us over time it's very important there's a high premium on human beings being able to carry their sense of identity over a long phase of time you could have a chimpanzee for instance that has something like that but I think the nature of our long relationships our long amount of time caring for our children often over decades is really unique in nature there are comparisons but it's really it's pretty full-on for human beings that's it that's a it's it's something that may helps us to make sense of why we have to have this awareness of ourselves and and be just staying on top of our story of ourselves as much as we possibly can do of course that's given us this sense of this kind of dualism that isn't quite really what it appears to be but there is another thing you know when I was talking about the fact that within dualism there's also a a value valuing that's happening that we're favoring one kind of substance over another the spiritual or mental substance over the physical one and that you have to ask why we're doing that and we're doing that because it's frightening you know a lot of people essentially are trapped in a condition that they find scary they're they're inside a vessel that they have the ability to understand can be cut and hurt can be humiliated can get a disease can get a pathogen from some stranger or whatever can you know can and is going to die and I think there's not a person on this planet I would be willing to to stick my neck out and say that 
anybody who has the capacity to have that awareness will have had that moment in the middle of the night where they're caught off guard and the heart thumps and they realize they're going to die and it's frightening you know even if you have deep faith that is a frightening uh, proposition for our minds to, to kind of manage so I think we all have that locked in syndrome the bizarreness of it all though is that we're like okay we can we can science this we can fix this right we can get the technology it's going to be okay everyone we're going to upload our brains we're going to get that essence out and we're going to stick it on a chip and we're going to convince that chip it's still living its physical life even though it's not and that's going to be great yay you know obviously most of us know that's a bonkers path to go on because, of course, you know, what really matters to us is our physical lives. That's the sadness of it all. You know, what, what the work that we all have to do is to try to come to terms with our limit, to try to come to terms with the fact that we will be absolved back into the cosmos. We have to try and square up to that. Well, one of the ways we're trying to uh, avoid that or at least extend our lives is by, as you point out, we're, we're engineering our own lives. And... and Genetic engineering uh, offers some great promise, but also some, some really difficult moral questions. I think this book is exactly the book that people need to read to be able to answer a question. And I just heard a report the other day that I thought was uh, perfect for this book and for you to answer, to discuss. Uh, we are now celebrating the, I think, one-month anniversary of a successfully transplanted pig kidney into a human being. Now, that was done on a human being who was brain dead. And, and so right there, I think you get all the questions out of your book. Engineering the, the human body to accept things that aren't human so that you can extend your life artificially. But was that a human body when it was declared brain dead? If the soul is our essence, this is a soul. Melanie Challenger, here's oh, a question okay. to challenge your your ethics. Right. Okay. So because it's a lot to unpick there ethically. So what we're talking about there is xenotransplantation. So xenotransplantation for listeners that aren't aware of this is still a pioneering area of. Research, xenotransplantation just means plants taking an organ from a non-human animal. Most, mostly it's pigs that are used at the moment and putting them into a human. So in the studies that are coming out at the moment, so xenotransplantation as an idea has been there for quite a long time, actually, but it's only very recently um, that that we're starting to get some some sort of breakthroughs in the field, but it's very early doors. So you know, people don't need to think this is happening everywhere at the moment. It's not. It's it's very it's it's very much in debate within the ethics community at the moment. It's very frontier still. There are so many ethical conundrums within xenotransplantation. So, and again, it does touch on everything we've discussed. <clears throat> who do you trial so xenotransplantation is taking a non-human organ into a human organ you can only do that if you think that non-humans like pigs have no moral standing 
you could never do you could never think of harvesting an organ because these are not organs that have been taken from the agricultural you know the food systems these will be the risk the risk and the risks involved in xenotransplantation are huge pigs contain certain kinds of viruses that can be transmitted to human bodies so not only is there a rejection high probability of rejection of the foreign organ in the human body but there's also a risk of pathogen of, of zoonosis so of, of a pathogen going from from the pig into the non-human population with all of the consequences that could come from that so a big part of making this idea work involves not only having extremely sterile environments for living pigs to live in who will be who have their organs harvested from them so building kind of clean factory like settings for these animals that would need to be scaled up if it was going to meet organ shortage which is what this is all about it's and a, then never let me gene. go it's a if you're familiar it is like <laughs> never let me go absolutely Kazuya Shiguru does this brilliantly, provocatively, philosophically in his novel, Never Let Me Go, where we have cloned people who we learn, sorry, spoiler alert, everyone, who we learn are going to be used as organ transplants for um, to to deal with organ shortages in these sort of superior non-cloned human beings. There are so many levels in which he kind of deals with our moral what feel like intuitively hard lines, what feel like intuitively um, serviceable moral ideas start to pull apart. So as you've pointed out, in order to test xenotransplantation, you need a live model, you need a healthy pig, you need then a pig that's been genome edited in some way, or sorry, gene edited in some way, so that the risk of the viruses coming from the pigs into the humans is reduced so the acceptance of the organ works you've got like a million crazy stuff like that that you have to try and ethically work out all of that is made possible because the pig has no moral standing so that's the first crucial thing but then who do you trial this on because this can only work you know we can't we have to do it in human models and human beings can't be used experimentally because human beings are not treated as ends in the medical industry even if they give sort of consent there is still some circumstances where you won't permit certain kind of kind of if if there's a really high chance of death or danger what more widely to the community where you won't give permission for that kind of trial to go ahead so you have a brain dead patient not because that person doesn't matter morally but because their moral standing has shifted when there cannot be any other outcome but death for that individual and if they have given pre-consent to do that work or the family have given consent to do that work then you've got a human model where you've got a brief window where you can see if this proof of concept even works whether whether you they for a while you can keep them alive and the body will not reject you can study how the body accepts or rejects the organ so why is that well it's because you know our brain is obviously fundamental to our ability to survive but we're at all of these you know what is it to be dead are you still alive are you quasi alive are you what part do, do you matter morally as much when you're brain dead or do you a little bit less moral standing when you're brain dead these are really provocative 
ideas and it's one of the reasons that I love bioethics because it pushes you into really complex and uncomfortable intellectual terrain where all of your nice neat assumptions get blown out of the water and you have to and yet for the well-being of everybody and in order to move forward you have to do the slow painstaking work of having a dialogue with everybody and also you know interrogating these ideas and trying to get at a kind of best policy or best solution to it. But yeah, xenotransplant, I mean, my own feeling with xenotransplantation is I have enormous, enormous in sympathy for the imperative that there is a huge, um, there's a lack of organs for people. But I think we do have to ask questions about whether we really, at this point in time in human history, with what we do now know about, for instance, the sentience of pigs, the cognition of pigs and so forth, do we really want to move into that level of industrializing and objectifying a pig and their existence? Um, I think, I think, aside from other ethical, con you know, the issue with zoonosis and other ethical um, ramifications. I think the standing of pigs alone is enough for us to be really needing to have some serious conversation about how we deal with organ shortage and whether there are other ways to channel our funds and our research funds to try and meet that problem that we that we face. I, yeah, it's a complex one. You, you know, one of the things that you brought up too. Um, we've been talking about the human side, but. There's also the animal side, and what we and animals both share is embodiment. I have two hands, which are enormously useful to me. If you gave a pig hands, it might just well decide to build itself some buildings. I know that there are some pigs in there large wild uh, escaped pigs in Canada that are trying to get down into the U.S., and what they're doing is they are building what are called what they call pigloos. Uh, they are building their own little places in the ice to keep themselves warm while they're on their journey to to the United States. And on the other hand, uh, in a conversation with Jennifer Ackerman uh, about her book, The Genius of Birds, she was telling me about you know sparrows that with a brain. I always thought you know birds up until I read that book were negligible, not much more than, you know, large insects, really. <laughs> but when you learn that a sparrow can remember 5,000 different stashes within like a, you know, a circular range of like a half a mile, you realize, heck, I couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and you start to understand that, you know, animal cognition is, I think, really largely based on their embodiment. Birds don't build cities because they sure as heck don't need to. <laughs> Yet we build cities because we need to and we can. And that difference is not necessarily a difference of that we're more complex than, that, than birds. We probably are, but it might not be as many magnitudes as we have expected. And I think that's one of the things your book does really well is to put us on both sides of that animal-human line and remind us that, well, in the end, we all have bodies. Yeah, again, there's a huge amount to unpack there. I think one of the things that I'm really interested in or that has happened 
recently is in some ways people have tended to fear reductionism right within science so um so trying to understand things on the kind of smallest level the smallest level the smallest level but actually one of the advantages that we've had that you know one of the good things that's come out of some science that is really getting down to the molecular level in trying to understand what is really happening let's say on a decision maker like a goal-oriented behavior on the part of an organism like where is the goal in the body of the organism how is the decision made and when scientists are trying to really answer those sorts of questions and to do that in a kind of fairly reductionist way to get down to the kind of really to the lowest level of the organism to try and kind of work up from that what's come out of that is a humbling awareness of how small the the kind of level can be in an organism you know how much memory there can be in a very small sort of at the very small tiniest of levels we've seen that to a certain extent in how how the technology of of microchips has gone and in you know computer memory if you like has we've we've learned ourselves how to pack more bang for your buck into a smaller kind of model each time but it turns out that in I think it makes more sense when we can understand things on the very small scale within a body or within a single cell organism or just within a cell. How is a cell working as a unit? How is it communicating? How is that kind of signaling happening? How is how is the dividing of the cell taking place? So when we start really, really looking at the tiny level and we realize the complexity of what's going on and also the the, the way that memory can be embedded at, at a very, very, very tiny level of, of a living system, that helps us to make sense of, well, that's how you can get a bumblebee that's pretty smart. Of course, you can get a lot packed into a very tiny space, because that's kind of what all living systems are doing. So that's been very helpful to understand that, because I think the thing that you're getting at as well, you're sort of saying, well, hang on, a lot of what is necessary to us or what is possible for us comes from our different evolutionary pathway and the different body plan that we have. So the different kind of form or pattern that we are in the world. And that's absolutely true. Hands are really, really crucial to the way that our brain works and have really impacted the kind of thinking being that we are in the world, as well as impacting what we do and what we manifest in the world around us. That's definitely true. You know, it's also true that the kind of life history that we have or the life cycle that we have can also impact us massively. So if we're a long lived species and highly intelligent, what what comes from that? What happens if we what are our eating habits? We're a predatory animal. We're omnivorous, but we're predatory. So what would have happened if our kind of cognition had come from? another of the great ape lineage that also had a big phase of brain growth but were herbivores would would world and society have looked somewhat different I think for sure it, it, it would we are definitely constrained by our particular life history life cycle and our particular evolutionary history um but I think you know it's also the other way that it, our bodies impact us or a particular kind of species form impacts us is, is the kind of moral thinking that human beings can do. So we need to see faces. We can't see an insect's face. It's too tiny. There's a face there. 
it can look at you, but it's too tiny for us. They're so small relative to us. I was having this conversation with someone the other day who was, you know, challenging me to the idea that a mosquito could have any kind of intrinsic worth or moral status. And I said, well, you know, in far enough back in, in, in evolutionary history, insects were bigger. You know, lots of things were bigger. There are phases in, you know, in in geological time where you have insects that are kind of as big as a as a small dog. When you've got an insect like that, then you can see its face, you can see its eyes. That how would we relate to that being if we could see it at that scale? So our scale makes a huge difference. You know, well, yeah, yeah, pretty scary. <laughs> but uh, but also, you're probably going to attribute mind in a way and agency in a way that you are less likely to when it's in a tiny package and when you can't see the face, you know? So there are lots of ways that we have kind of biases built in that come from the particular kind of animal and animal form that we have. You know, I really love the way this book was written and I'm wondering, was it written as one long essay? Did you, or did you like, create sub essays and then join them together uh, talk about uh, you know the decision to write this book because it's clearly an important step in our philosophical and scientific thinking and we we need that these kind of steps now because the kind of steps we're able to take scientifically without any moral uh questioning or self-questioning are you know potentially catastrophic to both to not just to the animals but to us as humans uh with vis-a-vis for example ai which we're told might bring about the end of humanity i mean it's very kind of you to say i think i i should say that i think that the book does owe a lot to the thinking of others as well it's you know is populated with with the science the insights and the thinking of other people as well and i and i increasingly in fact try as as much as i can to try and find female philosophers to 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 bring in to the picture because I think that's important and still necessary sadly within within history of ideas or within big ideas but I would say that the book was, in all honesty, it was incredibly difficult to write. So it was written as a whole. The So it wasn't done piecemeal and put together in that kind of way. I did wonder, and I think some readers probably have found it a harder read than they might do if I just sit down with them and talk them through the ideas in a sequential way. but. What I wanted people to get from the experience is just how many places are these sorts of struggles with our animal condition and the kinds of moral, psychological and social consequences and historical consequences that come from, from our animal nature and our struggle with being animals is so wide reaching, so um you know, the kind of tentacles are everywhere that I wanted to give people a sense of that 
wide landscape and the implications at all times. I don't think I could have done that. It would have been an easier read maybe, but I, I think we would have lost something of that large um, domain if if it was done in a very kind of um, strategic kind of linear narrative kind of way. In fact, the book that I'm writing at the moment is more straightforwardly having to take us through a kind of chronology of the idea um, simply because it's much more mapped to geological history. Um, but but with How to Be Animal, I needed to give people a sense of these ideas, these same ideas recurring in different places, different contexts and different times in history. So that meant having to keep all of that in motion at each stage as we took one theme into another theme into another th theme throughout the book. I mean, the funny part of it was... <laughs> Um, the first part of the book which lots of people love the first sentence of the book and and comment on it to me and that did not just fly off in a moment's inspiration it was really really hard one <laughs> I probably spent more time trying to write the summary of the book at the preface then possibly I took on the whole of the rest of the book. It, it took such a long time and I could not move forward. And my husband kept on saying to me, are you on to chapter one? I'd be like, yeah, no, I'm still on the preface. <laughs> it's day after day this would happen. I never told my kind of publishers. I was just like, yeah, it's all going really well. I'm not just writing the first 3,000 words for 10 months. But um you know, it was really, really essential that I could condense the the ideas down because I synthesize across so much material. That's difficult to hold in mind just for me, let alone for readers. And so I felt like I've got to try and summarize this so that even if they just read the preface, they would get something rich and impactful, hopefully, in the first part of it, but also that that could be a, a touchstone for the rest of the book this is it kind of summarized even though it's very complex and and has many parts as best as I can so the really really hard part was that synthesis right at the beginning well I, I thought that it would, it would uh, a cunning strategy to give us a kind of a, a moral road map uh, before you give us you know the the entire complicated moral terrain that would that we're about to tread upon and treading upon now. Um, what are your thoughts very briefly about AI? Yeah, AI threads its way throughout the book. And actually, the, again, the, the work that I'm doing at the moment is really kind of opens on AI. Um, not just AI, but but the whole project of information. So something that we haven't touched on. So how can I summarize this briefly? Artificial intelligence is, is, a, is a part of a complex and, you know, kind of messy journey that, that pockets of society and individuals have been on for a long while to try and both establish what mind is, what intelligence is, and the project of synthesizing that. And those two things have been in a kind of angelic struggle with one another, because it's only in 
understanding you know what what intelligence is that you can then synthesize it but when you synthesize it it then reflects back on intelligence and there's this you know strange sort of dance going on throughout the kind of history of artificial intelligence there also have been lots of different kinds of models of what we think intelligence is but the one thing that I think is, is consistent, even through network theory, through these different kinds of ways, through the computer metaphor, through all of these different kinds of ways of thinking about what mind and intelligence are, has been the dominance of the value given to the notion of information. Now, that's part of that is part of an even wider uh move that's gone on in the history of human ideas towards you know trying to understand what sort of information is and what matters you know what what the universe is made of what is what a you know what a non-living living systems made of you know what's the kind of core essence that that really matters in the world and this information unsurprisingly has come to the fore in the last century certainly but particularly once the digital revolution kicked off and so I think that we should not be surprised if we look at the history of human ideas and how our kind of our struggle our attempt to try and make sense of what matters about life and what matters what 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 is at the heart of it all that we have ended up with this story going back to the first question this story that information is at the heart of everything so ultimately we're trying to build a way of of handling information faster better and more effectively and that involves several assumptions that may be wrong. The first is that that may not be what is fundamental to cognition. That may not be what it's all about in that straightforward way, but it may also not be what ultimately matters. What will come of this experiment is, is as yet unknown. I mean, I think there are lots of areas in terms of our problematic relationship with being animals that are not in the um in the mix at the moment when we talk about ai ethics we're focusing on biases within algorithms you know so biases within the information and biases that to do with kind of how that sort of algorithmic process falls out that could have ramifications for us we're frightened of the idea that they'll get smarter than us that they'll be able to cognize faster than us and they i don't know what this they is i should qualify that straight away ais let's say different forms of artificial these ai programs we have this idea that they might turn rogue and turn against us that we'll get the ai predator if you like um which that predator motif often turns up with frankenstein is a predator motif if you think about it so and that's a kind of surgical sort of science anxiety now we have the AI predator. It's again, it's not surprising that that sort of story would would emerge. What I think is very interesting is that is more what it says about our our disembodiment, I suppose, or the distance between us and also the the kind of dangers that come in in 
encouraging an emphasis on a certain type of thinking as being what is valuable in the world. And that is something that is unexamined at the moment. And we are not understanding the kinds of social cognition that we have and the likelihood that the way that we theorize mind may be really problematic in all of this. The, The way that we... If we have an exploitative relationship, for instance, we tend to perceive less mind. So what's that going to do if we develop robots that we want to do work for us that are are supposed to be um, that are supposed to be used by us and yet, you know, have these minds that we're going to assume are are not as intelligent as they are, for instance. There are all kinds of ways that we may be very ill-prepared, but what else do we do if we get into a state of anxiety, for instance, that we become jealous of these minds and we think, right, we've got to start. And you can see hints of this in Elon Musk's kind of anxiety that, well, we've got to super, we got to super up the human brain. We need human brain interfaces because we can't have these AI algorithms getting smarter than us. The fact that they may only be good at doing a certain very, very discreet part of of cognitive work is is still enough to kind of want to to lead us to kind of pour millions of pounds into trying to develop a a super brain in human beings. But we have to keep in mind the fact that hierarchical thinking about intelligence has never tended to land well for human beings. So is that the direction that we have traveled, that we want to go in? And what happens to people who don't want to super brain themselves? Do we end up with different kinds of classes of people, the un-kind of neuro-enhanced and the, the, the neuro-enhanced? Or in fact, could it go the total opposite way where in the same way, a little bit with plastic surgery, which came out of an unexpected need, plastic surgery largely came out of trying to resolve veterans who had who had scarring and so forth, then became about beauty and strapped onto our desire to look as beautiful and as young as we possibly can do. And now we have this weird thing where we value natural beauty slightly more than those synthetic kind of tweaked beauties. We could end up where the unenhanced become the superior citizens and the enhanced aren't. And so these all just remind us that, again, an AI pathway has come out of stories we told ourselves about intelligence. And if we don't understand the kinds of prejudices that are at work and biases that are at work, we're not likely to steer this quite in the direction that we might be anticipating. The new book by Melanie Challenger is How to Be Animal. Thank you for joining me, Melanie. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for asking such great questions. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.